We live in a world marked by dissension, division, strife, hatred, war, and other manifestations of violence and bloodshed. In the 20th century were two of the most cataclysmic and destructive wars in all of history. It's estimated that there were about 37 million people killed in World War I, including both civilians and military personnel. In World War II, the number killed is estimated to have been between 62 to 78 million people. Nobody knows the exact number, but estimates are around 62 to 78 million people in World War II. Before and after, in the same century, the 20th century, there were many other wars, large and small, and many millions more were killed. And there have been more wars in the 21st century as well. History is largely a chronicle of division, of strife, and of war. Not only are nations divided against one another, but within nations are various groups clashing and often fighting with one another. Religions are also divided with a variety of religions, each claiming to be the true religion. Christianity itself, or what is popularly called Christianity, is divided with over 400 major sects and denominations and countless smaller ones disagreeing and competing with the others. Within the Church of God, there have been numerous divisions and splits, not only in recent times, but at other times in the Church's history, pretty much throughout the Church's history. So we might ask, why does such division exist? What is its cause? And what is its cure? Is there a way to peace? If we can understand the root cause of division and strife, perhaps we can understand more clearly the path that we ourselves should walk in. In today's sermon, I want to discuss how sin causes division and how seeking oneness with God and following that unity with God will pave the way for us to live in peace and unity among ourselves. We read in John 1 and verse 1, John 1 and verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So we have here revealed in the Scripture that there was the Word, and there was God, who is elsewhere referred to as the Father. There were two distinct beings in the Godhead. Each was a God-being, equal in that respect, and unified. The Father and Christ were and remain one, that is, unified in purpose and spirit, as Jesus Christ said in John 10, verse 30. John 10, and verse 30, he said, I and my Father are one. Not that they are one being, but that they are one in purpose and spirit. Jesus said in John 17, and verse 11, John 17, verse 11, as he knew that his life was about to end, his physical human life in the flesh, he said, Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. This was a prayer to the Father. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. Notice that Jesus Christ wanted the people that he left behind, his disciples, his church, to be one as he and the Father are one. In verse 20, verse 20 of John 17, we go on to read, I do not pray for these alone, but for also for those who will believe in me through their word, that would be us, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me and the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. So this is an expression of God's will 
it is God's will that we are to become one or unified in purpose and spirit as the Father and Jesus Christ are unified. Now, since the Father and Christ are unified and have always been unified, what is it that introduced division, disunity and strife into his creation? Leaven is used in scripture as a symbol of sin. How does leaven work? Yeast is commonly used to leaven bread and it does this through a process of decay. The yeast consumes sugars in a lump of dough producing gas causing the lump to rise or to puff up. In a similar way, sin produces decay or disintegration, corruption, a breaking apart. The the yeast actually consumes part of the loaf and breaks it apart. One of the Hebrew words for sin or doing evil is ra'ah, which means to spoil or literally to break to pieces. That's what sin does. It spoils, it breaks up, it corrupts whatever it touches. Disunity was introduced in the spirit world when Satan sinned by rebelling against God. And so we read in Ezekiel 28 about that rebellion and what happened. Ezekiel 28 beginning verse, with verse 12 it says, Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre. And the king of Tyre here is put as a metaphor for Satan, as we'll see. And say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You were the seal of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden. So this is obviously not talking about a physical human king of Tyre. It's talking about something else entirely. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. The sardius, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. The workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day that you were created. You were the anointed cherub who covers. So this tells you what it's talking about. An anointed cherub is an archangel. And the Bible mentions three archangels. This is one of them that it mentions here in this passage of scripture. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created till iniquity was found in you. Now notice that this spirit being whom God had created was perfect until iniquity was found in him. By the abundance of your trading you became filled with violence within and you sinned. Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God. And I destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. This would be the from the presence of God at his, at his throne. And so we see division introduced here where, where there was a barrier, a division placed between God and this spirit being that he had created, the highest of the angels, an archangel. The archangels are the highest ranking of the, the angels in the hierarchy of angels. And God had to cast him out. He says, your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. In other words, he was trying to exalt himself which corrupted his wisdom. He, he became a fool, really. It says, I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings that they may, uh, might gaze at you. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst and it devoured you and I turned you to ashes upon the earth. 
in the sight of all who saw you. Now this is going back to the physical realm, but what it is speaking of is primarily Satan as a king in the way of analogy, the king of Tyre. So this spirit being who was in God's presence was removed from God's presence because he chose to rebel against God and he sinned. Now Adam and Eve also were in the presence of God. They also were in Eden, not the necessarily the same Eden that was spoken of here before, but they were in the Eden on earth where God's throne was after God had created the earth, actually restored the earth, renewed the earth, and he had placed a garden there, which was called Eden, where he dwelt in that garden. And Adam and Eve were there placed in that garden in the presence of God. And they had full access to God. They were able to see God, to walk and talk with God until they sinned. And then they too were cast out. They were separated from God by sin. And so we read in Genesis 3, beginning with verse 22, Genesis 3 and verse 22, the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And what this is really about that is that Adam and Eve had appropriated to themselves a prerogative that God had reserved to himself, that is, the authority to determine what is good and evil, the authority to make law, to determine what is right and wrong. That's what law is. And he had told them specifically not to do that, but they did it anyway. They made up, began to make up their own rules about what was right and wrong. And so God said, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden. These are angelic beings and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So human beings, the human beings that God had created were cast out of his presence and they were cut off from the tree of life at that time. Cain, one of the sons of Adam and Eve, was also driven from the presence of God when he sinned by murdering his brother. As we read in Genesis chapter 4, beginning with verse 14, Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth, and it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Going on in verse 16, it says, Then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. So Cain too was cut off from God's presence and the privilege of being able to commune with God. The factor here that caused this division was sin. Sin is contrary to God and His nature. And thus sin creates a barrier, a divide, a wall of separation between God and the one who sins. As we read in Isaiah 59 verse 2, this was written to the people of Israel whom God had chosen as His holy nation to set an example for the other nations and yet they were not holy in the sense that they did not obey God, at least not most of the time. And so God also cast them out. And so we read in Isaiah 59 verse 2, but your iniquities have separated you from your God and your sins have hidden His face from you so that he will not hear. Now, we see here that sin creates a 
wall of separation between God and the ones who sin. Sin also creates disunity, strife, and wars among people, even among sinners. Sin creates disunity and strife and war. We read in James 4, verse 1, James 4, beginning verse 1, Where do wars and fights come from among you? This was actually written to some of the Israelite peoples. This uh, epistle was written to some, some of the Israelite peoples who had settled in parts of Asia Minor at this time. Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war and you do not have because you do not ask. So we see here that the cause of the wars he was writing about had to do with sins such as lust, covetousness, and murder. Now God's purpose is to create a family. God's purpose for human beings is to create a family, a kingdom, populated by his children, sons of God, created in his likeness, having his nature, sharing in his eternal life. As we read in 1 John 3, beginning in verse 1, 1 John 3 and verse 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God. It has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Notice it says, it's not yet been revealed what we will be, but we know that when he is revealed, when Christ is revealed from heaven, we shall be like him. And we will see him as he is because we'll be able to know him as the same kind of being that we will have become. We who will be in the resurrection at that time. In Revelation 2 and verse 7, Revelation 2 and verse 7, Jesus Christ speaks to the churches and he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So that's going to heal the disunion, the division, the separation between God and man. And it has to do with overcoming. Overcoming the flesh. Overcoming our natural tendency to rebel and to sin against God. Overcoming the influence of Satan in the world. It says, he who overcomes, in Revelation 21 and verse 7, Revelation 21 and verse 7, he who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. So we will be as children, sons of God, in the kingdom of God, in the fullest sense possible, if we overcome. When God has accomplished his purpose for humanity, all, all will be unified under the Father, and God will be all and in all. His entire family will be unified and God will be all and in all. Think about what that means. God will be all, it says very clearly here, and in all. And this is in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning verse 24. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to uh, the kingdom to God the Father. This is speaking of Jesus Christ. When he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, which we read about more in Revelation and more details about that, 
But then it goes on to say, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. In other words, everything that opposes God. For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, quoting from the scriptures, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. In other words, everything will be under the feet of Jesus Christ, under his authority, except God the Father, who is supreme over Jesus Christ. He is the only being who exists, who has authority over Jesus Christ. It goes on to say it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all and in all. It's God the Father who appointed Jesus Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, as the ancient, uh, or, or as the, uh, the Son of Man who is to come and rule the earth and who actually now rules the universe under G, under the Father. But it says that then the Son himself will be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. In other words, the God family will be entire. They will all have, share the same nature, God's nature. The Father the Son, Jesus Christ, and all of the other children in the family will share God's nature. They will have God life. God's nature. And eternal life as He has it. And they will be unified. They will all be subject, willingly subject to the Father. They will have proven, proven that they are willing to submit themselves to Jesus Christ and to the Father. Willing to do whatever God requires them to do to obey his laws unlike Adam and Eve who refused to obey him now as human beings though this requirement to overcome is impossible it is not possible for human beings to overcome in the way that we've read about without help because of our nature as we read in Romans 8 and verse 7, Romans 8 and verse 7, the carnal mind, that is the fleshly mind that we're all born with, our human nature, is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. No matter how good human beings want to be, and this is covered in Romans chapter 7, no matter how good human beings want to be, and it is possible for human beings to want to be good with only their carnal nature to, to rely on. They may want to be good, but as Paul points out in Romans 7, they find that that is beyond their ability. And it requires God's Spirit to actually overcome in the way that God requires for eternal life. As long as we have only our fleshly minds to rely on, as long as we are dominated by the fleshly mind and nature, we will remain sold under sin. As we read in Romans 7 and verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. This is what Paul was writing about of himself before his conversion. Before he was changed into a different type of person through conversion and receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, he, Paul was a, was a very religious person, a very genuine, sincere, zealous individual. And he was a, a Pharisee. He had very strong opinions and a desire to serve God as he understood what that meant. 
only his understanding was flawed. No matter how genuine or sincere a person may be, without the Holy Spirit, they cannot please God any more than Paul could. He came to realize that despite his desire to please God, he was sold under sin. He was a captive of sin. He was enslaved to sin because he was carnal-minded. Even though he was an expert in the scriptures. He knew the scriptures. He had studied them for years. Yet he was carnal. Carnality equates with sinful thoughts and sinful behavior. And carnality is at the root of division among men. And even after conversion, you still have your carnal nature to contend with. The carnal nature isn't removed because God gives you His Spirit. It's still there. And it's just as powerful as ever. And it's still something you have to contend with. 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 3, Paul is writing here to the church, the church in Corinth. And notice what he said to the church. These were people who presumably had been converted and received the Spirit of God. Although, as Paul points out, there were false brethren among people in the church at that time, just as there always have been and are today. But he wrote to the church, you are still carnal. You are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? So this tells us why there is division in the church. And there was division in the church even during the New Testament era, as we read here. And division will persist as long as carnality prevails. Genuine peace and unity among ourselves, the people of God, the church of God, is predicated on our being first one with God. So this is what we need to strive for, first of all and above and beyond anything else, we need to strive to be one with God. Too many people have put the cart before the horse. They want to be one with some minister or leader or group or whatever without first being one with God. How do you become one with God? The only way you can become one with God is put sin out of your life with God's help. Put away sin. We read in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3, 1 John 1 and verse 3, that which we have seen and heard we declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Notice where the fellowship begins. It begins with being at one with the Father and with Jesus Christ. Then, if we are fully at one with them, we will be able to fellowship in unity with one another. John goes on to write, 1 John 1, beginning with verse 6, 1 John 1, verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with Him, with God, and walk in darkness, that is, in deception, in lies, in false doctrine, false practices, or in sin, we walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, that is, in the truth, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. So to the extent that we are living in sin, to the extent that we have been corrupted by sin, we will have disunity. Even though we may be converted up to a point, as long as there is sin, there will be division among us. Now we are to be growing into the likeness of Christ. We don't overcome sin 
all at once. In fact, it's a lifelong process. We're going to have to contend with sin as long as we are made of flesh. We will have flaws and faults and weaknesses. But we are to be growing into the likeness of Christ, which means that we will be growing into unity with God and ultimately unity with one another. As we read in Ephesians chapter 4, beginning with verse 11, Ephesians 4 and verse 11, and he himself, Jesus Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. To edify means to build up. To build up the body of Christ. Till, until we all come to the unity of the faith. Notice this presupposes that we haven't attained that unity yet. It is something that we are working toward. Till we all come to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge and of the knowledge of the Son of God. It means that we are not yet perfected in our in our relationship with God or with one another. To a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine. That's what we are now. The church is made up of children who are tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, including false doctrines in some cases. By the trickery of men. In the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. And this is what misleads people quite often. Men out to exalt themselves. Men out to promote their own agendas. Their own doctrinal ideas which are false and unbiblical. And so it creates division in the church. But we are to be growing spiritually so that we're no longer allured to those things. So that we are no longer victimized by them. We're we're supposed to be developing so that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting but speaking the truth in love. May grow up in all things into him who is the head Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. So again, it is our relationship with Jesus Christ that will produce the unity and the growth in the body. This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart who passed feeling, have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. And this too is something that we must be doing on a a continual basis. We need to be putting off the old man daily, striving to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, putting on the new man, 
striving to become more like Jesus Christ and less like the old carnal lawless selves that we were. To the extent that we lack the mind of Christ, to the extent that we are corrupted by our carnality, we are still leavened. But we are to become unleavened. As we read in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7. Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. As, as we've uh, been mentioned many times, this tells us that this uh, epistle was written during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But it applies whether at that time of year or any time of year. Becoming unleavened means separating ourselves from sin. It means separating ourselves from sinful practices and from those things that are abominable in God's sight. As Christians, without self-righteousness and in all humility, we must separate ourselves from entanglements that oblige us to sin. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 14. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. In 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, 2 Corinthians 7 and verse 1, it says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Now, if we follow these admonitions, ironically, we may and almost certainly will incur the wrath of others. If we follow these admonitions, others, at least some other people, will speak evil of us and hate us because we refuse the sinful practices accepted in this world. And so Jesus Christ warned his, his disciples, Matthew 10 and verse 17, he said, Matthew 10 and verse 17, beware of men for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. Notice where they would be scourged in their synagogues, in their churches. The councils, the councils, the religious bodies that rule the churches as well as government councils. Will, will scourge you and put you to death. And we read in Matthew 10 and verse 21, Matthew 10 and verse 21, brother will deliver up brother to death, a father his child, children will rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated for all, by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end will be saved. So Jesus Christ warns us very clearly that we will face persecution if we seek to actually obey him and follow his precepts and commandments, his word. He went on to say in verse 34, 
of Matthew 10, verse 34 of Matthew 10, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the, uh, those of his own household. But he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus Christ did not come to bring peace among human beings. And his doctrines have not resulted in peace among human beings. Generally speaking. What they have done is create division because as sin creates division and sin is contrary to God's mind and heart and word, the truth also produces division in the sense that it alienates from us those who are opposed to it. And more than a few individuals who have been converted have found after their conversion to the truth that their family members become hostile to them and estranged to them. And as Jesus said, even to the point sometimes of betraying them and having a part in putting them to death. It was Jesus' own nation, his own tribe primarily, the Jews, the Jewish, the, the, the tribe of Judah, not all of them were of Judah, there some were Levites and various other tribes as well, but it was the people of Judah, the people of Israel, who persecuted Jesus Christ primarily and who sought to condemn him. And of course, they found willing collaborators with the Roman government who actually nailed him to the cross and executed him. But it, but it was his own people who were against him. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 11, 1 Peter 2 and verse 11, Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, Notice who's accusing who of being evil. It is Gentiles who are speaking against disciples of Christ, the people of the church of God, as evildoers. When they speak of you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. They're not going to glorify God now because of your good works, but they will in the day of visitation, that is when Christ returns, and they themselves have the veil of blindness lifted from their eyes and come to understand the truth. What this means is that even though we must reject the world and too close an association with the world, at the same time, we must be courteous. We must be kind to others. We must live peaceably with all men as much as it's possible to do so without denying the faith. It doesn't mean we compromise the faith to get along with other people, which is what some have thought is appropriate, but that's never appropriate to violate God's laws just so you can get along with other people and not uh, place yourself in what might be an embarrassing position. We have to set a right example for others. If it means refusing to eat pork or refusing to keep uh, the various uh, pagan practices and holidays and so forth, things that are contrary to God's law and His Word, we have to be willing to take a stand for those things, but we should not do it in a way that is unnecessarily offensive. We should 
try to live peaceably with all men as much as it's possible without denying the, the faith. And so we're told in Romans 12, beginning of verse 17, Romans 12, verse 17, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, if we're to strive to live at peace with all men, that would include living at peace with one another. And the way we do that primarily is by avoiding sins which provoke division. First of all, division between us and God and division between us and other people or one another. In Galatians 5 verse 19, Galatians 5 verse 19, it says, The works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now notice among these things are not only obvious sins like adultery and idolatry and so forth, but also jealousies, selfish ambitions, this is often a carnal type of behavior that has been manifested within the church. People wanting to be noticed, wanting to gain a position, gain recognition, like Ananias and Sapphira did by lying about how much they'd given to the, to the people in the church. Dissensions and heresies, deliberately provoking division, preaching heresies and lies and falsehoods, false doctrines which divide the church. And much of the division in the church is a result of these things. Heretical teachings, selfish ambitions, people seeking to promote themselves rather than the truth. And we are to recognize those things and avoid them. We must seek peace and practice humility because pride creates strife. If we are filled with pride, filled with spiritual pride or any other kind of pride, that will create strife. Ephesians 4 verse 1, Ephesians 4 verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you are, were called with all lowliness and gentleness with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Notice the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, it is important that we strive to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That means, again, being one with God, having God in the in our focus as, as the center of, at the center of our focus and it means that we have an, a duty to not be motivated by selfish ambitions or that we not be teaching heresies and falsehoods and lies to people and things of that sort in proverbs 13 verse 10 proverbs 13 verse 10 it says by pride comes nothing but strife but with the well-advised is wisdom. By pride comes nothing but, by, but strife, but with the well-advised is wisdom. Proverbs 28, verse 25. He who is of, of a proud heart stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. Proverbs 10, and verse 12. Proverbs 10, and verse 12. We are told that along with humility, we must 
practice love. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. So we need to be willing to forgive one another in order to live in unity. But that doesn't mean that we should participate in the sins of others, but we shouldn't hate them either. We're told that we are not to be derisive or scornful of the truth. We're not to scorn the word of God or his laws. We're not to be derisive toward those seeking to faithfully obey God in the truth. We read in Proverbs 22 and verse 12, Proverbs 22 and verse 12, cast out the scoffer and contention will leave. Yes, strife and reproach will cease. So scoffers, those who are scornful of the truth, those who refuse the truth are to be cast out. We're to separate ourselves from such people. There will always be contention and strife where there are scoffers and people who are deriding those things that I mentioned. We're not to be wrathful. We're to, we're to be careful not to be out of control, to let our anger cause us to say and do things that are not appropriate. Proverbs 15, verse 18, A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger allays contention. We need to be very careful about flying off the handle. Now there are things to get angry about, but we need to be very cautious in how we handle any anger that we might feel toward anything or anyone. In Proverbs 29 and verse 22, Proverbs 22 and 29 verse 22, an angry man stirs up strife and a furious man abounds in transgression. People who are angry, who are filled with anger and hatred and, and fury are sinning and will sin. You know, when, when you find mob action, when you find mobs burning down buildings and killing people and things of that sort or, or beating people up, those actions are not really, uh, generally speaking, conducive to anything that's going to result in uh, something positive. In James 1 and verse 19, James 1 and verse 19 says, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. Now, it doesn't say that you should never have anger or wrath, but it should be measured and it should be controlled in a godly manner. It goes on to say, For the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Carnal wrath, carnal anger does not produce something righteous in God's sight. And so this is something we need to be very careful about. We are to put away perversity, lying, fraud, and slander. Perversity has to do with twisting and perverting things and often involves lying and fraud and slander. We read in Proverbs 16, verse 28, Proverbs 16, verse 28, a perverse man sows strife. Someone who is perverse, who twists, and who is not only perverse, but also subversive, who accuses people, especially accuses them falsely, who spreads gossip and slander. These people create division. A perverse man sows strife and a whisperer separates the best of friends. We shouldn't be engaging in idle gossip about people and accusing people unjustly. In Proverbs 26 and verse 20, Proverbs 26 and verse 20, it says, Where there's no wood, the fire goes out. And where there's no tail bearer, strife ceases. And so... A perverse person is one who acts in an unseemly, ungodly manner. We need to be honest and upright in our conduct and we need to be careful about anything that would sow strife and create division unnecessarily. We need to avoid getting into petty arguments 
quite often the things people argue about the most are things that matter the least when you get right down to it. Proverbs 17, verse 14, it says, Proverbs 17, verse 14, the beginning of strife is like releasing water. Therefore, stop contention before a quarrel starts. Sometimes when people want to argue about something that's trivial, the best thing is not even to reply, not even respond to any provocation because all it's going to do is result in strife, very likely. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, and verse 22, 2 Timothy 2 and verse 22, it says, Flee youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Notice it says we are to pursue peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. Avoid foolish and ignorant disputes. Knowing that they generate strife. A lot of the disputes involve not only foolishness but ignorance. These things generate strife, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. It is the job of a, of a minister occasionally to correct someone, just like it's the job of a parent to correct a child, or sometimes a mate to correct the other mate or other situations where correction is necessary. But whenever you correct someone, whoever you are, whatever the situation is, you ought to try to do it in the spirit of humility. Sometimes people need to be corrected and must be corrected, but we need to strive to do it with humility. As it goes on to say, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Occasionally in the church, we need people who need very strong correction. But even then, we must do it as adroitly and gently as possible to try to help the person. Now, there is division in the church. There always has been, pretty much since there's been a church, division within. Why does God allow those divisions? God allows them to test us. In 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 18, 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 18, it says, First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it, for there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Paul said there will be, there must be factions within the church so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So we shouldn't be surprised that there are factions, divisions, a variety of fellowships or groups within the church of God, the greater church of God, who have differences among themselves and even differences within the different factions. That's really what human nature is. And it's going to be that way from now until we're all made perfect. And it is that way so that those who are approved may be recognized among you. What that means is that we all have to be striving to be, first of all, at one with God, so that we can be accepted by God, and eventually we will grow into the kind of unity that we ought to have, and the peace that we ought to have, the singleness of mind that we ought to have with one another. Now, despite the fact that there will likely continue to be divisions and heresies among us, 
We can be approved. We individually can be approved if we work diligently to put sin out of our lives. If we work to seek to be at peace with those who call on God out of a pure heart. And if we are at one with God, we will eventually become one with one another. 